0: This is the Chapel of DBTS. Be sure to subscribe and listen to the Chapel messages weekly. And for more info, please go to dbts.edu. And now today's message. So open your Bibles this morning, if you would, to the book of 2 Peter. 2 Peter chapter 3. We'll be concentrating on the first seven verses in this chapter, although we'll try and incorporate the whole of the letter into what we're saying this morning. Unless someone here has not yet joined the World Wide Web, you're all aware of this ongoing movement that rallies evangelicals around the gospel as a basis of togetherness and coalition with a nexus of unity that basically we find in conferences and schools and to some degree circuit riding evangelical celebrities. I've been to my share of these conferences and I have a high level of appreciation for the ministries of many of these folks that I just spoke of, so it's not my goal here in any sense to denigrate the movement. There's been a lot of good done by this gospel unity movement, as they've come to call it. But there are certain things that a movement like this cannot do, and to their credit, have rarely attempted to do. And the chief thing of these is planting churches. You know, church planting is something that can be legitimately accomplished only by another church or perhaps by a group of other churches working in concert. And in order to have such a church planting impulse, there has to be agreement on more than just the gospel or even just the broad head of theology that we call soteriology. There has to be a more There has to be some level of broad stated agreement in other spheres of both biblical and systematic theology. There has to be agreement in the areas of bibliology, Trinitarian theology, anthropology, ecclesiology, and then as we go narrower, topics such as views of depravity and divine sovereignty come to the fore, the nature of sanctification, the place of miraculous gifts, the role of and, and the practice of biblical ordinances, church polity, and perhaps, a- above all, shared views of the church's mission within its culture. So there's a lot of things that have to be agreed upon in order for a church to coalesce. But what's often left off of these lists of points of necessary agreement to build a church are issues of protology, which is study of origins or first things, Genesis 1 to 11, and then eschatology, which is the study of last things. And incidentally, as an aside, if you happen to use the word protology in a research paper, realize that Microsoft Word autocorrects that to proctology. And you really don't want to <laughs> confuse those <laughs> disciplines, right? Okay, that's, that's all extra. <laughs> uh, it's, so it's widely held that the areas of protology and eschatology are areas of unnecessary division that ought to be suppressed in the interest of unity, uh, despite the fact that a huge section of the Scripture is given over to these topics. It might interest some of you to know, for instance, that a third of the Bible, especially in the Old Testament but also in the New, is given over to prophecy. Now, I, I say, say that tongue-in-cheek because I know a bunch of seminarians, you already know that, But the paucity of preaching from this corpus may make us wonder, perhaps, if we are forgetting these things that are rather important. In fact, Peter is going to say in our passage this morning that these are things that we actually need to remember, depending on one's degree of disagreement on these topics, protology and eschatology. Not only does ecclesiastical fellowship become impossible, but... Depending on the degree, evangelical fellowship becomes impossible. My homiletic claim this morning, then, is that protology and eschatology matter not only to our shared view of the mission of the Church, but also to our understanding of the Christian Gospel. I'd like to demonstrate that from Second Peter chapter 3 this morning. We're going to read the first seven verses here this morning as we, as we work our way through. So, Uh 2 Peter 3, 1 to 7. Dear friends, reading from the NIV. This is now my second letter to you. I've written both of them as reminders to stimulate you to wholesome thinking. I want you to recall the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets and the command given by our Lord and Savior through your apostles. First of all, you must understand that in the last days scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say. Where is this coming? He promised. Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, by God's word, the heavens existed and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Then, by these waters, also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. And by the same word, the present heavens and the earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men one of the p- more notable features in the pauline uh, petrine corpus here especially the second letter is this emphasis on remembering you actually find in these few verses we read four references either to remembering reminding or the opposite forgetting and uh, this idea of remembering is all through this letter it starts all the way back in chapter 1 where Peter warns his readers in verse 9 not to forget that they had been forgiven of their sins. Then in verses 12 and 13 of the same chapter, he reminds his reader to keep their Christian walk and perseverance in front of their minds as a means of being sure of their salvation, their, their, their forgiveness of sins. They're calling an election. He then diverges into a discussion of the importance of inspiration for supplying what he calls a perpetual reminder, which we are, in verse 19, to give attention. Chapter 2 is not so much given to mentions of the word reminding and remembering and forgetting as it is given over to an exercise in remembering. He goes through a series of Old Testament stories about the angels that sinned, Noah, Lot, Sodom and Gomorrah, Balaam. All of these are remembered. Lots of exegetical and theological intrigue in this chapter that we can't go into. But as we maneuver through all the exegetical intrigue of that, that that chapter raises, we can't lose sight of Peter's overarching theme. Some people forget what happened to their great dep- detriment. Some people remember it to their great advantage. We must note right away that this idea of forgetting and remembering is more than a matter of simple memory recall. It involves that, of course, uh, but it's not limited to that. There's certainly no suggestion in chapter 1, for instance, that the assurance of our salvation is tied simply to remembering the event of our salvation as though a a date written in the front of your Bible or a decision card uh, will help me remember that I'm saved. Now the point here is that we remember by responding to God's calling and election and incorporating the implications of the gospel into my character and walk. And in fact, the New Living Translation at the beginning of that list of, of virtues we're to add to our faith actually translates it in, in this way. He says it's not so much just a call to remember, but to make every effort to respond to God's promises, supplementing your faith with excellence, knowledge, self-control, etc. Okay. Uh, perhaps you could quibble as to whether that's a, a, a translation or an interpretation, but the fact remains, I think that the, the, the New Living Translation has captured, the essence here. We remember by responding uh, to the information we have. So when we come to this third chapter of 2 Peter, we find another call, another call to remembrance. Here it's a summary call to remembrance that includes, right there in the, in, the, in the text here, the entirety of both of Peter's letters. Now because the scope of this summary is so broad, the precise data that Peter is referencing Perhaps might be lost, uh, but I think it's, I think it, 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 there's a, there a narrowness to what he's saying we need to remember. Verse two remembers two broad categories. first, he says, the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets, and then secondly, the command given by our Lord and Jesus our Lord and Savior Jesus through the apostles. Now, these still are fairly broad references, but I think as we examine them, they become narrower in their scope. First, let's look at what the NIV says here is the words spoken in the past by the holy prophets. NASB has something very similar, the things written beforehand, and many modern translations follow this understanding, and if that's the case, it's pretty much a generic reference to everything that has been written up till this point, all of the Old Testament and portions of the news. Well, this is possible, but the phrase could be translated differently in the ESV, if you happen to have that in front of you, understands the things written beforehand a little bit more narrowly as a reference to events predicted beforehand, thus limiting Peter's comment to things that have not yet occurred. So they are forward-looking things that have been written down, not just anything that has been written down in the past. And this fits the context. Peter is chiefly concerned, as we work our way through this passage, with the certainty of future judgment as an impetus to wholesome thinking and to wholesome living. So if if we can summarize here, keep the end in view, lest you lose sight of how you are supposed to live in the present. That's a major theme in the Petrine Corpus generally, but particularly the second letter. So in a nutshell, Peter tells his readers to pay attention to predictive prophecy and matters of eschatology as a primary means of sustaining Christian gospel living. Secondly, he says, pay attention to the command given by our Lord and Savior, Jesus, through the apostles. Now this line also seems to be rather broad at first blush, but the fact that it appears in the singular, the command, Suggests that Peter has a specific a specific command in view, and there are no imperatives in the near context. We actually have to go all the way back to chapter one, verse nineteen, to find the most proximate imperative in this book. But it's a good, it's a it's a it's a, it's a strikingly good option here. Now we find here in this passage. Uh, this is a passage that uh, my good friend Matt Post have preached here just about two or three weeks ago in in this pulpit. It's Peter's recollection here of the transfiguration of Jesus Christ. And if we can recall that original incident, I think it gives us some insight into what Peter's saying here. Christ has just commanded his disciples to forfeit their lives in the present in order to invest in treasures and pleasures that will be theirs at the second coming of Christ. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very bold command, and perhaps you can imagine that the disciples are standing there. They, that's a, that's a, that's a difficult one, and so Jesus puts an exclamation point on his statement by saying, "Not many days hence, some of you are actually going to see this kingdom." Okay, and then both in Mark and Luke, the next verse says. About six days, or about eight days later, depending on which, which of the Gospels you are reading, about a few days later, he took what? Peter, James, and John up into a mountain and was transfigured before them. In other words, they get a glimpse into the kingdom, uh, you know, complete with the, 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 the glory of Christ being revealed, and then cameo appearances by two Old Testament figures that really have no earthly reason to be in this location, on this mountain. And so so Peter, James, and John see this. Peter's geeked about this. And so he suggests, let's, let's build tents for everyone. And um, this is the wrong response. And so God comes in a cloud, God the Father actually envelops them and says, This is the this is the appropriate response to what you just saw. Okay. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Okay. Well listen to what? Well, listen to what he just said. He said, forfeit your life, give up your life for the next one. This is the next one. Forfeit your life for this, because it's a, it, is, it is a worthy investment that you should make. Live your life, order your life in view of the kingdom yet to come. Okay? And that is the command then that appears then in Second Peter chapter 1 order your life according to eschatology. Listen to him. And then ruminate on what he has said until it comes to pass, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. And so, to summarize, Peter is calling on his readers to give attention to predictive prophecy concerning the return of Christ in power and glory until this idea permeates our entire worldview, and informs our behavior. And I'm ashamed to say that I fail here. We we, we probably all do. That's why we need reminders that Peter is giving us. Those of you who sat under Dr. McCune will know that he routinely lamented that we have far too little preaching on the second coming of Christ. And I think he's right. I think Peter says as much here. Such neglect, he says, is detrimental to the spiritual health of God's people. Uh, When we fail to keep the future in view, uh, we lose our rudder for the present. I'm reminded of the old Negro spiritual, right? I would not be a sinner. I tell you why this be so. I'm afraid my Lord might come for me, and I wouldn't be ready to go. And there's verses on I wouldn't be a gambler, and I wouldn't be a liar, and so on and so forth. It's a very simple, it's a very simple song. But this idea, captured so simply in this song, doesn't resonate with the way we live. We're not afraid our Lord might come for us, because we don't think a lot about the fact that our Lord is coming for us. We have a trembling tendency to crowd eschatology out of our worldview. And that's the concern that Peter has. Which leads then to the question, why is this so? Why do we forget why do we need the reminder? And Peter goes on in verses 3 to 4 to explain here that the reason we forget is the constant bombardment of an alien worldview, this sinister worldview that threatens both Christian thinking and gospel living. The reason we forget here is that of uniformitarianism. Okay? And he, he puts it into the mouths of these people he calls scoffers, scoffers. And these scoffers are developing an unbiblical worldview in order to justify their dissolute lifestyle. And so the actions here in verse 3 is that these people follow their own evil desires, their own sinful lusts. And emphasis here is on the fact that it is their own idios, their own desires, an insertion that seems to draw attention to a contrast. They have no loyalties except to themselves. They have no law except that they are a law unto themselves. And they certainly do not subject themselves to the law of God. And since their own desires are corrupted by depravity, their desires are uniformly evil. God has, as Paul puts in Romans 1, given them over to their sinful desires of their hearts, to debased thoughts and debauched passions, as we're going to see in a few few moments here, Romans 1 is something of a parallel passage here, and it's not surprising that similar terms are used. But here in Second Peter, this activity is, 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 is attended here by a peculiar attitude. They're scoffing. Now this, this withering condescension that drips with mockery and contempt. You believe what? kind of intellectual arrogance that makes us instinctively cower a bit, right? I think Augustine captures the spirit of these mockers in his commentary on the book of Genesis. After he's set forth a more or less literal understanding of the opening chapters of Genesis, he muses this way. If I make such a statement, I fear I shall be laughed at by those who have scientific knowledge of these matters. Not much has changed in 1500 years, have it? We do the same thing. Augustine chafed at this snickering incredulity, this patronizing bemusement of people who hear what we're saying. And we endure this as we defend the lordship of Christ that he created directly. But these scoffers think their arguments are better. They think their arguments are foolproof. And verse 4 details their argument, this promise, that Jesus is coming again. It's silly. He's not going to call us into account. He will not judge us in righteous fury. This has never happened before. Why should we anticipate it happening to us? In a word, they have adopted a uniformitarian worldview. Everything continues as it has from the beginning. That's it. That's their poker hand that they think is strong enough to bet every last chip. Things continue as they have from the beginning. And on the strength of this bedrock principle, they argue in sequence God is not my creator, and since he is not my creator, he is not my judge. And if he is not my judge, there is no reason for him to be my savior and my Lord. Okay, that's 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 the sequence that goes through their minds. And it's in the face of this sequence, a syllogism, that Peter launches into his polemical answer in verses 5 to 7. We're struck immediately here in these verses by the target of Peter's answer. He goes incisively after the first element in that sequence. He goes after protology in their worldview. They don't accept Christ as Lord because they don't see him as judge because they don't see him as creator. They forget something, he says. They forget that the universe does not go on in an endless succession of sameness it had a sudden beginning that is contrary to every uniformitarian principle ever conceived and even god deniers admit this there was a sudden event a supernatural event that scuttles their whole method of thinking peter's not alone in targeting creation and is apologetic paul does the same thing right and in Acts chapter 17, the Areopagus Address. uh, And he says here that their major problems is that they are ignorant of a certain fact, that they are God's offspring, descended from one man, Adam. And as a result, they fail to recognize that they are subject to judgment. And the astonishing thing, Paul says, is they actually know this to be true. It's actually in their poetry. We are divine offspring, but they willingly forget it. In Romans 1, he says something similar. He says that all people everywhere know about their powerful creator God from the creation itself, but they forget it. Or more precisely, they exchange this truth for a lie, actually convincing themselves that the lie is true. And once this happens, they begin to flout the threat of divine judgment that verse 32 says they know is coming. In the Old Testament, we find the writer of Ecclesiastes in his fabulous treatise on worldview. He closes by encouraging his readers to do what? Remember your creator. While there's still time to reconfigure the philosophical structuring of your minds. Creation is vital to the gospel. And so Peter now turns to critique uniformitarianism in two ways. First on its own terms and then ultimately from the standpoint of the Christian scriptures. First thing that Peter observes is that the worldview the scoffers uh, hold to lacks internal consistency. He makes a jab at the scoffers on their own terms. He's not saying I'm right, you're wrong. He's saying God's right and you're absurd. In the words of His earlier epistle, Peter, puts them to shame. Now, what exactly does he say? Well, he informs the scoffers that their worldview is not sufficiently comprehensive. They say that things continue as they have since the beginning, and Peter says, okay, well, how do you account for the beginning? Even if we assume for sake of argument that all things continue as they have from the beginning, and they don't, chapter 2 is testimony to that, but even if one would agree with this, The theory can't account for how things began. Their worldview has to make an immediate exception to itself in order to exist. And incidentally, you can use the same argument today. Nothing has changed. Exactly nothing has changed. But Peter is not content simply to answer the fool according to his folly on his own terms. He invites the scoffers into the biblical worldview and adds specificity to his claim. He makes three points, two that look back and one that looks forward first peter says god was not subject to uniformitarian constraints when he created the world he says no no peter's very specific here the heavens and the earth that's this this merism that contains the material and immaterial realms and everything inside of them sprang instantaneously into existence by the spoken command of god okay that's how it started then secondly he says there is another protological event that doesn't fit the uniformitarian mold either and that's the flood and in keeping with peter's purposes this must necessarily be an extraordinary flood one that uh, or, or peter's point is lost this is no local flood similar to in scope to other floods this was a supernatural flood that was qualitatively and quantitatively different than anything else they had ever seen That's the whole point of the rainbow, right? The rainbow is there whenever you see it as a reminder that uniformitarianism is not true. Things do not continue as they always have, and mercifully so. God's not going to destroy this world again by flood. And any proposed worldview that does not account for both the miracle and for the ensuing providence is inadequate, deficient, and fatal then Peter takes these two historical, protological events to draw an eschatological conclusion. If there is, within the holy, self-consistent, biblical worldview, provision for God to break into this realm, which he has created, to effect cosmic and u- even universal changes in keeping with his, his own purposes and decree, should we scoff at his clear promise that he's going to do the same thing again, but this time with fire? Well, Peter says, no, it would just not be very prudent. Because the word that in verse 5 spoke the heaven and earth into existence is the very same word that verse 7 says will speak the world out of existence. Suddenly, furiously. So stop scoffing, Peter says. He goes on in verse 8 to theologize a little bit about God's relationship to time. The point of this reference is somewhat debated. Some have suggested, based on these verses, that the days of creation might not be days at all, but lengths, you know, ages and such to accommodate uniformitarian science. But that's not Peter's point at all. It, uh, It really ignores the context. Instead, Peter seems to be adding additional data for anyone who still might be skeptical. You know, we might say, well, it's been such a long time since those events have happened. It seems like forever. And so Peter goes on to explain that, from God's standpoint, it hasn't been a long time. God, God's relationship to time is different from yours. It, it seems like a long time to you, but it's not for God. God is timeless. There does seem to be a delay, but what's the delay for? Because God is delinquent? Because God is slack concerning his promise? No, it's because he's merciful, and so we should not you know, give up our thinking about the, the end times because God is slack or del- uh, is, is delinquent in fulfilling his promise. He's going to, but he delays out, out of mercy. And so Peter then asks, in closing, if all these protological things truly happen and all of these eschatological things are truly going to happen, what kind of people ought you to be? Yeah, that's the question of Second Peter, and it's actually stated there in verse 11. What kind of people ought you to be? If God is, in fact, your creator in the past and will be your judge in the future, what should he be in the present? Well, Peter answers, he must be your Lord. You must own him, verse 18 says, as your Lord and Savior, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. You ought to live, verse 11 says more immediately, holy and godly lives. You should, in verse 14, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with Him. That's the conclusion. fact is, we all tend to yield at times to uniformitarian thinking. That's why Peter wrote this letter, because we we tend to give into the same kind of worldview that the opponents of the the gospel uh, promote. We do so... Because, as God delays, we lose sight of the fact that God is our creator, and God is going to be our judge. And Peter's message is clear. God, a few thousand years ago, spoke this world of ours into sudden existence by means that he no longer employs today. And he will suddenly, just as suddenly, speak this world out of existence in ways that he is currently not yet employing and these two absolutely true and indispensable facts stand as necessary bookends, Peter says, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. May God grant us the courage to maintain them in the face of scoffers. Lord, we are grateful for your word to us. We're thankful for the specifics that it gives to us, not only about uh, what you have done for us on the cross, but also the the, uh, the, the context, the context, uh, the, the seedbed in which all of that all comes together. Lord, I ask that you would give us the, uh, the fortitude not only to defend uh, the, uh, the, the facts of the gospel, but also that worldview in which we find them. Thank you for listening to the DBTS Chapel Hour. DBTS is a ministry of Intercity Baptist Church. To find out more about Detroit Baptist Theological Seminary, please go to dbts.edu.